Hello, and welcome back to the Autistic Tidbits and Tangents podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kara Diamond. I'm an autistic teacher and university lecturer from Canada. And with me is my co-host. The other co-host, the temporary co-host. Hello, everybody. My name is Bruce Petherick. Um, I am autistic, and my day job is being autistic advocate at Autism Canada. And it's summertime, so I'm melting. Ah, I've got the air conditioning going, so it's not too bad here. Now, today, we well, we'll probably deliver on the promised tangents, but we discussed about two hours ago, what, what were we going to talk about? And Bruce found an article um, on autistic architecture that did not mean it in the most positive way. And that's got us thinking about how we use language and particularly how we talk about and engage in societal conversations about what it means to be autistic. Welcome to Autistic Tidbits and Tangents. Candid conversations between autistic off-hour professionals. (laughs) Cool. Trigger warnings for this episode include pathologizing language, talks of ableism, internalized ableism, how we use language related to labels and autism, and more. And a slip of the tongue on the word functioning. Excellent. All right, Bruce, why don't you tell us a little bit about the article that you found? Why, thank you, um, member from York, uh, t- Toronto. <laughs> I, 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 I welcome your question. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing some research for a conference that I am um coordinating, hosting, creating. Um, And I was thinking about architects. So I was doing a little bit of search about autism, autistic architects is what I was looking for. And I come across this interesting link to a woman called, named Maria Kaika, K-A-I-K-A. And she's from the University of Amsterdam. Um, She's a, I think she calls herself a professional geographer. Um, an urban historian, and she wrote an article called Autistic Architecture, the Fall of the Icon and the Rise of the Serial Object of Architecture. Very academic uh, journal, uh, article. And I thought of the title Autistic Autistic Architecture, and I thought, well, this is going to be great because – Maybe it's going to talk about the idea of an autistic culture. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when I looked into the article, it sounded a little derogatory. And Kara, I think you have uh, the actual definition used in the article. Yes. So I, I skimmed it. So I, I can't give a formal critique, but I'm going to critique the parts that, <laughs> that's jumped out at me in my skimming. Uh And here's a a quote from it that also uses a quotation within it. So like its patrons who do not engage with urban political life, this new type of architecture, which I term autistic architecture, 
does not engage with the city that surrounds it and demonstrates a, quotation mark, pathological self-absorption and preoccupation with the self to the exclusion of the outside world, end quotation. So not a good thing at all. I know. When you sent and- me the title, I my first thought was that, like, I, I thought of well, students that I've had who've described being able to build buildings in their minds. And I thought like autistic architecture is probably how it all started anyways. (laughs) Probably started with architecture probably is filled with autistic thinkers. And what a positive thing that is. And then I I thought sort of the opposite. Um, You know, like it should have more autistic thinkers to make more accessible spaces. And we've just before we started, we talked about the use of accessibility um, in architecture. It, it talks about how a building can be part of a community and can somebody get to it. Um, where we in the disabled community, when we talk about accessibility, we're more talking about how easy is it to get into the building, how easy is it to move around the building, which which are not the not the same things. No. Um, could you explain, could you, when you responded to the text earlier, you said, isn't all architecture autistic or, or something similar? What, what yeah. did you mean by that? Well, that's sort of what I just alluded to before, that I think people who are able to create worlds in their minds often are autistic. That's not to say non-autistic people can't be architects, but I was thinking like people who create and improve spaces like if we if we go back to caveman days i bet the people doing those things being innovative and creative such a degree i bet many of them were autistically minded hmm it's interesting because i i it's so because we are part of the culture because we are autistic and we're part of autistic culture, I think I think we can have a tendency of thinking everything's autistic. You know, coming back to our conversation last week about living in an autistic-only world. Yeah. Um, I, it, it's interesting. Architecture is that architecture is that mix of pure creativity. And, and pure creativity of a physical space, yet there's a practicality mm-hmm. that is sometimes, I think, missing from okay. autistic ideals, uh, autistic culture. Um, and engineering is sort of similar way. If you think, actually, yeah. in, in, on a linear spectrum, I see engineering and, and architecture being on the same line being extremely creative engineering tends to be a little more practical and architecture tends to be a little more artistic perhaps yeah um but it is it's a it's a lovely combination of that free free thought free creativity with practicality and and that's kind of where i'm i'm not sure it fits into a purely autistic culture well and Um, i don't don't think it's purely autistic but i do think that those are sort of the traits that I would think of when I think of autistic architecture, uh, creativity, accessibility, uh, you know, finding new ways of doing things, better ways of doing things potentially. And this article did not refer to it that way at all. In fact, their use of autistic 
uh, like you said, was really, really deficit oriented. In fact, they talked about, uh, so here's another quotation, the autistic attitude of interior spaces extends to the open space around these buildings, blah, 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 blah. Basically, they, um, they are privatized, inaccessible and unwelcoming to the urban dweller. So those are sort of the, 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 the adjectives that they associate with autism, privatized, inaccessible and unwelcoming. So, and I'm going to read another quote from the article, and and this may be the core of the problem of the language here. So, this is this is from this is again a quotation from this article, but this is a quote. It's a it's actually a definition of autism. Autism noun, a pathological self-absorption and preoccupation with the self to the exclusion of the outside world. Now. Yep. Which was in there twice. That's pretty. Yeah. That's pretty horrific. Like ridiculous, just horrific. It's just such a horrible thing to say, and and um and a weird for me definition. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem. Where does this definition come from? It comes from the Dictionary of Psychology in Politics and Social Sciences. I looked this up. This is actually from the APA site, the American Psychological Association. Dictionary. References DSM-4, so it's not current. Yeah. But so what we what we've got here is this person has possibly looked up the definition of autism, gone to the APA, you know, August experienced body, and got this definition. Now we've talked about this a little bit before. So what the where do you think this definition comes from? Like what what part of our behavior makes us preoccupied with a self to the exclusion of the I, outside world? I mean, I suspect I can't remember. I suspect if you go back to the root of the word autism in whatever Greek or Latin, it was something to do with like self. Um, so before it was like a diagnostic term, it like it, it had a partial meaning like that. But but then it. This has definitely come from sort of the 30s, 40s development of of autism as a concept and looking at children uh, who were in their own worlds and and, and a very rigid definition. And from the outside, like uh, thinking about interpreting children as being self-absorbed, because how can you perceive what other people are thinking? How can you perceive that other people are actually innately in tune and considering deeply all of the connections in the environment around them. You can't. You just look at them and assume they're self-absorbed and preoccupied with themselves. <laughs> and, and, of course, this is the problem we have because that question is neuro, leads us to neurotypicals are making assumptions about us all of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, again, we are so well prepared for this article. I, <laughs> I do remember that early cases that were described as autism did talk about this um this excluding of the, ex- of the external world and i can't remember if it was asperger or can i can i i i apologize i can't remember I think it's, they but both it's old. similar things on different continents and there was actually a link between them i think they both worked with this uh, with uh similar associates who who emigrated during world war ii yeah. Um, so it, they would have been familiar with each other's work. 
That's even if they didn't it didn't uh, say it publicly. Like they both kind of yes. Claimed. That's the thing. I think there's no public. No. Anyway, anyway. So, and so, even before so, that, there was a Russian woman. I think in like the 1919 or early 1920s yeah. who also had observed traits in in a better way, I believe. But I can't remember her name. Sorry. It, it's almost as if we just popped into existence in the 20s when we were mm-hmm. described. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so this definition is old. This definition yeah. is really super old, and. I was questioning why people would think about that. Now, I have talked about this with my favorite person in the world, which listeners will be surprised is not Kara. She's my second favorite. It's (laughs) Meredith, my wife. And we talked about this a little bit um, today, prepping for, for for the podcast. And Meredith did say, and and this is, you know, I, I'm I'm showing dirty laundry in a good way, um, that the family did see some of my behaviour as selfish and self-absorbed, and I do probably more times than I would be happy to admit, which I'm about to admit anyway. <laughs> I can often go into the kitchen and make a coffee without thinking about making a coffee for somebody else. Yeah. And that has seen, like, from externally, the family have seen that sort of behavior as being selfish. And and quite, I think my wife would quite say that my times that have been selfish have been relatively minor or, you know, few and far between so to speak but i think it's like i think it's a common thing i'm sure you can share times where you have been told to be you thought of me selfish i was just okay yes and no so i i think the term selfish when we think of the actual root of the word selfish or what 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 it, it meant it usually means intentionally selfish is how other people think about it and so i think that's where we always get a pass so, for instance, when we got on the Zoom call before I started recording, I was setting up my computer. I was trying to find the articles on my phone and doing all these things. You asked me how I was. I answered. It took me three minutes to be like, hey, how are you? <laughs> you know, and that wasn't necessarily because it's not because I'm selfish because I care about how you are all the time. But I was preoccupied. So it didn't occur to me to return the question until like three or four minutes later. Uh, and I feel like that's. Any time that I could potentially be interpreted that way, it's because I'm preoccupied. I have a lot going on mentally, and I don't think for a moment about like perception or what is like the expected thing to do. Um, and I, yeah. I do feel remarkable freedom when I'm with neurodivergent folk and and other people too, but especially neurodivergent folk that are not offended by me not necessarily conforming perfectly to the social niceties. I, and I, I mean, this is, and I think we're going to be talking about this, this same thing is going to be in the back of back of this conversation all, 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 all the time in this, this, this podcast. I will just forget the rules. Yep. And if I've and and so I work in my 
I work in my office, otherwise known as our bedroom, because that's separate from the rest of the house. You know, we only have three three um, room apartment. Yeah. Um, if I'm working and and I and and for some reason, you know, I'm lucky enough to my body to give me a little tick and go, boy, a coffee would be good good now. You know, I, I don't, I don't do, I don't have hunger pains um, until it's too much. I'm, I'm, this yeah. is one of my presentations. Um, so I'll often just go out and going. My body's telling me to get a coffee. I need to go and make a coffee. I will basically have no idea if my yeah. wife or the rest of my family are in the room. And what? And when I hyperfocus, I don't notice anybody else. Now, I do have a tendency to be overly giving at other times. I wonder if that's almost like a, I mean, it's definitely like a (laughs) trauma response, but I wonder if that's also compensating for, oh, I don't want to be perceived as selfish. I I now need to overextend myself in all capacities and drop everything to help everyone and say yes to everything and burn myself out to sort of combat all the times that I feel like I've fallen short of achieving those social niceties. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was going to say, I was definitely, definitely. And I was going to say, I would not, if I ever, I don't have, I've worked in an office for a very short period of time in my life. But if I was in an office and I walk past a desk or somebody I knew that that they usually drank coffee and I recognized they wouldn't have coffee, I probably would um, get them a coffee because when I'm not at home, I am cognitively thinking about all those rules. I am, I'm, I'm on, I'm on. And this is home. I, 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 I we let that go. That's your safe space. Like you shouldn't have to be overthinking and chronically examining and, and using all of your brain power just to kind of figure out, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Oh and my goodness. So to finish the, that, that conversation with, with, you know, the airing the dirty laundry, I mean, it, it's something as a family, we struggled with, but once all the all our diagnosis came in, and 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 my kids are both diagnosed with ADHD. My wife is also does has ADHD. Our diagnoses all came in within like a two or three year period. Yeah. Um, I think once we got that, that that idea of me being self-absorbed or selfish disappeared a lot now look i'm a human being there's been plenty of times i've probably been selfish you know there there have been like you know we all have these follies and foibles and things and like you know i'm not going to say i've never been selfish in my life um but i think a lot of that what was perceived as, as as selfish um there's a little bit more give and take here and look i, I yeah. i've had a, a a morning where uh <laughs> my my wife is in the middle of a project um a very 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 creative project and it's she's um so excited mm-hmm. and so scared and a whole bunch of things are bubbling up so she was talking to me today and it just it was just words and words and words and words and words and excitement and things and yeah 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 it was overwhelming. I, I couldn't understand what she was saying because it was just so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and we can make a joke 
in the house by going, Sweetie, have you had your meds yet today? You know, yeah. and and it's like, you know what? There's just she was info dumping so much that I couldn't comprehend what was going on. Yeah. And I said that and we smiled and things, but it's still like, yeah. you know, it was difficult. It was that difficult, like kind of five minutes. Um, it, it would be funny if there was a fly on the wall or, you know, we had a, a real life documentary going on. People sort of going, what crazy people these are. It's like, no, it's just part of our day and, and much more forgiving mm-hmm. and open about that. Um, the other thing I wanted to, so, so one of these things about us being self-absorbed is, is you've said it quite correctly. It's, it's, I mean, in one respect, we are being self-absorbed because we are hyper-focusing or we are um, trying to process things as much as possible. And, and of course, you're always going to go for yourself first. Well, I also don't think that's self-absorbed. That's like concept-absorbed. We're absorbed in what we're thinking about, which is not necessarily ourselves. But actually, true. Okay, good point. Good point. Um, yes, <laughs> the thought like- may have been ourselves, but the the the, the concept may be something. Actually, and that's quite amusing because there have been times. Actually, again, dirty laundry. Maybe I I I did walk out to the house the other day, and I was working on a, quite a complex presentation at work, and and this was actually a a big project which is going to change the lives of. 20,000 people, uh, 10,000 people, and I'm quite serious. It was it was a really complex thing. And I came out to the kitchen. I think I was rude to my family because all I could think of was what were these things, this this process I was working on for this big, big, big organization. Um, it, you know, I, I wasn't self-absorbed with Bruce. It was just self-absorbed with making these people's lives so much better. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And even if we are sort of... Like, you know, let's say I've I've just had parent-teacher interviews and I'm debriefing with my colleague who sits in on the interviews with me and I'm going, how did I do? How did I? I'm not actually being self-absorbed. I'm actually trying to figure out what did other people think? What was their experience? Did I do enough to support them? Mm. But it could easily be interpreted as self-absorbed. <laughs> and, and so we, we have our... So let me go on to the next thing I was thinking about in that, in that definition about we exclude the world and self-absorbed. I think the other thing, and we talked about this in our last podcast, is that autistics tend to be comfortable to be by themselves. Very comfortable by ourselves. And I think that's confronting. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I have talked a lot. You know, when, but the times I've I've stayed with you and we're working on things or doing presentations, how we would just sit in the room and read at each other and and like like not interact and parallel um, play or go to other rooms. Parallel, like it was just like and fun. it's like yeah. completely fine. But I think neurotypicals find that very confronting. Yeah, and I'm still having this idea that parallel play is something that we need to. Uh, that it seemed to be a, something wrong that yeah. when children yeah and it's just like I from an artistic perspective I disagree with it I think it is important for us to participate in social events with other people in general at certain times but the concept of parallel play being bad is I think is, is wrong and it's baffling to me too like 
some of the best planning sessions I've ever had would be when I'm in a room with other people who are also doing work. And every once in a while, you check in and go, hey, I have this idea, <laughs> you know, and then you go back to your whatever you're doing, and you're quiet. And but you're sharing space. And you know that they're there as a support system if you need them and vice versa. I also sorry, I just want to go back briefly to the article. Mm-hmm. I also think it's pretty telling that the article thinks it's okay to call something autistic architecture. You know, w- would they use that for any other term in the DSM? You, you know, did, would they call it schizophrenic art, uh, architecture? Would they call it bipolar architecture? Would they call it... I feel like autism is okay, okay, societally seen as okay to throw around as a descriptor, even though we're moving away. I even try not to use the word crazy as a descriptor because it's, you know, it's sanest. Um, but we're moving, we're, we're developing the understanding that it is not okay to label things uh, just willy nilly, however we feel like it, um, throwing around things that are people's lived experiences. But somehow it, it still seems okay yeah. to use autistic that way. It's a funny, like, there is a, there's a movement in certain academic circles to co-opt um, certain differences, disorders, disabilities. Um, I'm just, I'm thinking, um, um, Deleuze and Gautari, French contemporary uh, modern philosophers, Start talking about schizophrenia and schizophrenic history and schizophrenic um, narratives, and they're actually taking the idea of schizophrenia and and translating it into different disciplines. And and actually, I think one of them is a trained psychoanalysis. So, so perhaps that's a that's a you know good thing. But it's like there is a honoring of what the word actually means, and it's 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 kind of interesting. Um, it's really interesting on how they, they use the term, but you're quite right that you know we were hoping autistic architecture would be how architecture could be a reflection of our culture, mm-hmm. and we see it used in a completely derogatory way. And, and so, the, I suppose the question is, um, when is it okay? When would it be okay to call something autistic architecture? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think we have to examine all the ways that we use autistic in non-autistic spaces and by people who are non-autistic. I mean, obviously, we I, I'm a school teacher. I, I, I know that students use the phrase autistic as, as a you're so autistic as a, like a negative insult. So that is pretty common to hear it, it bandied around that way. Um and like I, I think, I mean, Maya and I have talked about this a lot about intention matters. You can say autistic in a way that is neurodiversity affirming, and you can use autistic obviously in a way that is uh, very pathologizing, very uh, where, where the intent is just um, to belittle. Um, and I, so, I think we really have to talk about how we how we use language and how we should use language. 
and we're in a privileged situation like right now. One, because we have an audience and, and whether that audience is one person or 5,000 people, we still have an audience, but we are also part of the community where we are yeah. autistic out autistic members of, of a community. So, um, I think we are careful and quite probably quite liberal in the way we use the word autistic because I think you and I know where the fuzzy boundaries are. Um, and then the question becomes, and, and I, I'm I'm just thinking about um, cultural appropriation here. Mm-hmm. When is it okay for a non-autistic person to use autism as a adjective in that sense? I, I think it's okay to use autistic if you're referring to someone who is an autistic person or who identifies as being an autistic person. I don't think it's good to bandy around the term. Like, uh, I'm trying to think if other reasons are acceptable. If you're like, oh, that that is so autistic. Um I think it's okay if you're you're speculating perhaps that person is autistic, <laughs> you know, maybe, uh, but not if you're doing it to insult somebody, but if you're doing it to be like, oh, maybe we need to be more sensitive. It's possible <laughs> they're autistic. Um, I just, mm. my understanding of the term autistic is so much fuller than a non, than many non-autistic people. Many non-autistic people's idea of what it means to be autistic is is what we've been talking about, self-absorbed, preoccupied, uh, you know, perhaps behavioral. Um, you know, they, they focus on all of these survival behaviors, um, the things the things that they've been told to be afraid of. Um, you know, I feel like when parents are told that their child is autistic, they're scared and they are made more scared by medical information by, you know, your child might never do this. They might never do that. You need to immediately get them in 60 hours of therapy a week. Like this is such, such a terrible thing. Um, I recently reviewed an article um, that, that talked about autism in this way. It it made great claims that, you know, remediation is necessary. Uh, And it was just like assumed that autistic students um, were, like that that they they just needed so much fixing. And so I think how we talk about what it means to be autistic needs to change because that message is what gets conveyed. And what's interesting is I'm I'm working on my second book right now and I'm looking at neurodiversity in general. So I've been doing a lot of reading on dyslexia, dyspraxia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, like uh, learning disabilities in general and What's interesting in all of the, the, the literature on those things that it's presented for teachers or parents as an audience, they make a point of saying, this is just a difference in brain wiring. But with autism, it's like, no, this is a disorder. This is a grand tragedy. This is the end of the world. You know, so it's no wonder parents panic. It, but it's also it's because it's an industry. People make so much money off of selling autism fixes. But that that informs how people think about autism as a concept. And that's and again, I will always sort of advocate for 
a value neutral approach. Like we need to be like, yes, some of these things are significant challenges. Some of these things are considerable difficulty. It's like, but we also have to go, you know what? It is not necessarily a grand tragedy. Let's look at the strengths. Let's look at the skills. Let's find what makes this person tick and what fulfills them and what they enjoy and what their interests are and and what their curiosities are because autistic curiosity like is one of the greatest gifts I think that we have. It can lead to such, uh, it can lead to hobbies. It can lead to careers. It is like, if we want them to engage in school, we need to tap in to autistic curiosity. We don't want to crush autistic mm-hmm. curiosity. Um, and like, so for children, if the message that they receive from YouTube, from watching shows, from hearing parents or teachers or or people around them is just like, oh, autism is a dirty word. It's a bad thing. We don't use this word in this household. Autism. <laughs> like, you know, and every time they say autism, it's with like tearful, you know, the, the tone is just like, this is the worst thing ever. Children who are autistic are going to internalize that there's something so terribly wrong with me. I, I, I think this is one of the blessings for me, maybe for you as well, for late diagnosis, is that I didn't have to grow up that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite honestly, it it takes a lot of cognitive effort for me to deal with somebody with the negative attitude. Um, and 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 part of my job is to deal with with, with parents um not often but but sometimes and um trying to get that logic of why you think it's that there's something bad going on here um and it's what's 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 it kind of interesting one of the again one of the huge benefits of my job is that so often i will just reach out and say, look, I'm an autistic adult, and like I've dealt with these things, and like things are fine, mm-hmm. you know. That there, and, and that, that acknowledge that we still struggle, we still mm-hmm. have struggles. Um, and I think without the struggles, the benefits will be missing as well Uh, and that's really peter was saying last week too like we kind of need our our all of the things that have happened to us that make us feel on the outside that have made us analytical or whatever it is that the, the the traits that we have often comes from the struggles that we have like we've compensated so much by intellectualizing by you know developing in other ways what we can't do by intuition Yeah, we still need society to to be a million times more accepting, and um, um, it's being aware and not judging. And coming back to the lo- this logic, this language that we're talking about, it's like if we are concentrating and not reacting to something you're saying, don't say, don't don't immediately go that's not wrong, rather than Bruce does this all the time because he'll often not be able to hear when he's super hyper focused, and huh. and and you know etc cetera, etc. Cetera, generalizing 
I mean, people will always, and this is true of anyone, autistic or not, like, we jump to conclusions about other people. But what, where we all have to improve is understanding that the conclusion that we jump to is just a hypothesis. We have to be open to being wrong. We have to get curious and go, oh, it's possible Bruce is doing this because of this, but maybe I should ask. Maybe I should collect some more information. You know, don't assume that you know why someone does something when you're not in their head, when you, uh, your experiences are potentially vastly different than that person's experiences. I mean, I, I also have to be careful answering questions on an autistic behalf that I don't jump into the autistic conclusion as well. So, 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 you know, um, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll be talking to a client, um, and, and they have a child who's non-speaking. And so, you know, we, there's an autistic response to that. There's a whole bunch of different reasons why non-speaking happens. So sometimes it's a cognitive, um, it, it's just, it's not getting into the, the body and brain at the time that people are expecting, and it'll happen in two years. Sometimes it's just they don't want to communicate. Sometimes the, the brain hasn't worked out. Like there's a whole bunch of you know, neurological things. But I always have to remember myself to say there also could be something physically wrong, and you need to have that checked out. Mm -hmm. Like it, It's that making sure that I'm also not jumping to the comfortable autistic experience Mm -hmm. which is I'm comfortable, but that, that acknowledge that there's still like, the chance of this, you know, this being a physical thing or, or, or being a different, you know, different neurological difference completely. And this is also a good point that like labels are only so helpful. <laughs> you know, you can't just look at the label. You actually have to look at how a person actually learns and exists in the world and what their actual experiences are because we're not all the same. And that would be the same for any label. People with the same label are not all the same. And we have to figure out what's going on with that individual person, which is why like getting curious, I think I will always say like, get curious. <laughs> yeah. And and that actually was, I was going to say, um, from an educational perspective, we, we never want to dampen the uh, autistic curiosity. And the thing that also should be triggering is that emphasizing that curiosity into non-autistic people as a, as a as a, another way of, of approaching something. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny. I, I I think if we if we looked at education from opening curiosity more and more and more, it would help. One, it will help standardize, not having standardized education, which is evil and bad. And <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Doesn't help most, yes. <laughs> um, but it's also, it's like, if you think, uh, one of the common things I used to see dealing with younger kids, and let's say, actually, let's say people you deal with, the elementary, elementary school, <laughs> often these kids... When they would come over to our house with my kids, you know, school friends, and, and they would say the most outrageous political thing, yeah. you know, some quite horrific things about the current prime minister or, you know, something. And it's like, okay, you're, you're eight. You have no idea. Like, why do you say that? Why are you saying that? Well, that's because that's what dad says. And I was like, okay, that's kind of fair enough. That's great. But those kids are not encouraged to be curious about politics or 
gently questioning a parental moral choice like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have the same problem within teachers often that that um, we don't encourage kids to question. Well, I mean, okay, I I think there is a strong tendency when we feel we as adults, when we as adults feel concerned that we're, you know, we're losing the attention of a class or we're, you know, we're not meeting all the learning goals or it's getting too noisy or, you know, it looks like chaos is breaking out. We clamp down. Mm. We, we control more um, because we feel like that's what we have to do. And we, we, unless you make a deliberate practice of, of reflecting and thinking about, okay, what are, this is going to Elficon territory, but like, what are the long-term goals that I have for students? How do I actually accomplish those long-term goals? Because like, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the majority of teachers would say they do want students to be engaged in political life as adults. They want them to be knowledgeable about things. They want them to have opinions. They want them to be critical thinkers. But if we're always clamping down, if we're always the ones making the decisions in the classroom or at home as parents, if we're always telling people what to do and not giving them chances to exercise autonomy or problem solving, we're not actually allowing them to develop those skills. Um, because I'm a, I'm a really big believer that if we want the world to change, um, it, it, it's very hard to do if you don't have practice or haven't spent time imagining other ways of doing things. We need to actually be able to like see and think about and conceptualize how to do things differently. And I, I think that also involves like you want children to have agency and autonomy. They're not just going to like suddenly be able to do it. They need to have the practice. They need to have the opportunities. <laughs> I have so many things I want to say now. Um, <laughs> somebody asked me the other day, like, I, I didn't look happy. And I was like, well, it was hot. And they sent me the, a little card with a smiley face that says, don't worry, be happy. And it's like, I said, that's not going to work. Like, <laughs> but it, it, you know, and much as it's a, I honor the, the intention um, it's also like you can't just tell me don't want to be happy. You can't tell kids, oh, have autonomy, go. Yeah, yeah. What? Um, yeah. Well, like- I, I want. I wanted to sorry, sorry. I also wanted to make sure, just in case we get thousands of screaming letters, we also understand. Well, I'm certainly. I, I'm going to say I understand that putting in firm boundaries that are known and respect is important too. Mm-hmm. And why I'm saying this is that I was trying to help a client in a situation earlier this week where there was a child in a space that continually threw an object mm-hmm. at somebody. Um, and the person that the, the object was being thrown at kept giving the object back until this more senior person came and said, stop, don't, you know, and and, and put the boundary in. It's like, and they asked me, it's like, is it okay to put boundaries in with autistic people? Yes. Yes, 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 we yes, yes. Want, we it, also want people it. to grow into adults who can respect other people's boundaries, whether they're autistic or not. <laughs> so tell us the boundaries. 
make sure it's defined as much as we can. And 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 um and in fact, this person did did a perfect job. Like there's a boundary. Um, this is not a behavior we want to have in this space. Can you please give me the object? Can I come later when this is finished and we'll talk about it? Like everything was tick, tick, tick. Yeah, you've done the right, the right thing. That's like, how can you, you know, we do want the curiosity. We want the autonomy. We want this, this, and this. But there, sh- there also has to be a boundary when you're in a social space. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and and I think I was talking about autistic curiosity at the beginning but i was also talking about curiosity as adults about why people Mm. why children do the things they're doing right rather than assuming but um yeah wow we've come so far in this topic (laughs) okay so i want to shift gears and hopefully we can bring all of this back together this is loosely related but thing of the day so for thing of the day i picked an article called The Experiences of Autistic Doctors Across Sectional Study, and this is by Shaw and colleagues, and it is from July of this year, which is 2023. Um, so for those of you in the future listening to this. Hello, hello from the future to the future. Now, this is a really fascinating article. It's, um, it actually says it's part of the research topic, Break the Stigma, Autism. Uh, and this article followed autistic doctors, so doctors who knew they were autistic, who identified as autistic, and uh, what was really interesting, so I think it was something like three-quarters of them or maybe two-thirds, more than half of them, a majority of them had at some point in their career uh, experienced suicidal ideation, which is like thinking about suicide, which can be passive or it can be actually thinking of making a plan um uh, and what was really interesting so that was obviously very sad i know that y- y- you were quite shocked by that um but another part that was really interesting was the doctors who observed that there were other colleagues who were either openly autistic or who they identified as potentially being kindred spirits also autistic tended to also feel, I think, more connected to a community. They tended Mm -hmm. to um, use identity first language, like I'm an autistic doctor, and they conceptualized of autism as a difference rather than a disorder. Now, those who were more at risk of actually attempting suicide, so the people who reported that they, they had attempted suicide tended to use person-first language, I'm a doctor with autism, and conceptualized autism as a disorder, which I think is so fascinating. And just like further, further emphasizes what we're saying is that we have to talk about this differently. We can't have people thinking, you know, just internalizing that, that everything about being autistic is negative. It's a... Again, the, the, this part of the, my my being of not being able to construct something that just seems so illogical. So therefore, my brain just goes, "Oh, it doesn't exist. It's okay." Um, you know, it's like climate change denial. It, that that is something. That is something I cannot 
I get just it's just these words it's a phrase i hear and it certainly often reflects a certain type of person but it's like i'm just going how why whatever so there can't be a link there can't be a direct causal link between the use of language and no, it's correlated. They said it's correlated, yeah. but, but these were all correlations. Doctors who had attempted suicide, uh, it was a correlation that they also used person-first language, and they also thought of autism as a disorder. And and I think that's the that's the thing. It can't be this language. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are listening, fire, to God, not fire watching, God in the sky is light angry. Is in my eyes, <laughs> and I'm like. Actually, it's not light. It's that's a bright sun. Um, what it is is a reflection of. It's a reflection of language creating our being, language creating our experiences, language creating. Um, a ref it language reflects something that we are experiencing, and not recognizing that power of the language we can flip. Well, and we can't think things we don't have words for, right? So. How we think about things affects, Ooh, like, that's uh, a... I mean, linguistic anthropology minor here, right? So I, I mm -hmm. <laughs> but language and thinking are like shape one another. They're interwoven. And it's, it's sad that there's a simple solution for this one. <laughs> but, it, but it's not, because what it is, is it's not only is it just um, consider the language use for, for those those doctors who are using um, person-first language. More importantly, consider everything that that means to you. And again, I have no problem with someone using person-first language. Like, if that's someone's preference, that's absolutely fine. What I do have a problem with is when we instill in people fear and, um, you know, like that there's hopelessness tied in with the label you know again why i say labels are only so important like they can give you some idea of, of needs but they are not the totality of of a person the, the, one of the i got this twice in the last month or so that i've just been devastated reading an article and, and the first one was a somebody i work with a lot sending me a link saying, is it true that 80% of all autistics are unemployed? And you go, well, no. And then you do the research and it's like, well, actually that's fundamentally what the numbers are saying. And and I think we talked about this last week where it's, it's probably underemployed is more important, but it's like, that still is the, it is so, so confronting. It's so confronting for me from an advocacy point of view. It's so confronting from my experience. Yeah. It's just, it, it makes me feel sick. Okay. But what about the doctors? For those of you who, and you know, there's no, hardly anybody who's been listening to this will know me this well, but I started off to do medicine. I um, wanted to do medicine. And back in Australia, you do medicine. It starts as, at the undergraduate level. And, and I had... All the friends, my my friends at school did medicine, so I was popping along with them. And, you know, there was a time of my life where being a doctor was going to be a good thing. Now, I'd be a terrible doctor, but that's okay. <laughs> um, 
That's a good thing about doing medical education is you learn very quickly whether you can be a doctor or not being a doctor. However, there is this thing about I still have this, um, I still hold doctors in general, the profession, at extremely high level. And to think of... But to think of an autistic person going through those 10 years of education to become a doctor and then still feeling like their difference is damaging mm -hmm. or they're broken mm -hmm. or these things need to be fixed is, is I, I, it's so unimaginable. And yeah. I mean, I've seen I've seen that in students as well. Like, depending on how they've been told they're autistic, uh, it can really impact how they feel about themselves. Um, you know, and it reminds me of I'll have to look up her name. I, I there's a wonderful conference started last year, Conference to Restore Humanity. It's an education conference, and it's done mm -hmm. virtually online. And one of the keynotes um, was talking about. I'm sure I've talked about this once on the podcast, but she was talking about representations of black joy and how important that is for black children to see, to counter the you know pervasive narratives of all of the bad parts about being black mm. in America and, and presumably other countries as well. Um, you know, you can't just show the grim parts. This is not to deny that they exist. This is not to deny that, um, you know, there are not considerable struggles and now I'm talking about as autistic people, like you don't, again, you have to be honest about both parts and like autistic joy is important to show, especially for children, autistic passions and strengths are important to talk about. It's important to recognize, you know, not just, um, Oh, you're struggling. That's your autism. You also have to be like, wow, you know, how you have that incredible memory for those, you know, fat, you know, how you remembered that thing from 10 years ago. You know where you get that? That's from your autism. That's really cool. Or, you know, like whatever it is that that child does that is just like, wow, other people can't do that as well as you can. That is a really remarkable gift that you have there. We have to like make that link as well. It, I, it's something I talked a lot to recently diagnosed um, adults, which is kind of the special area I work in and autism in Canada. Um, not to think that everything in your life is caused by your autism. Yes. <laughs> well, that's and, a good and, point and, too. <laughs> and then I then I sort of talk about like I often describe there's no break, Bruce and autism, but there's no there's no boundary. It's it's all one thing. But it's you know, it's it's what I was saying before about there are times my behavior may look selfish and it's it's not. Yeah. But there are times where I am selfish because I'm I'm human. And, it's a human and, trait. And yeah. that yeah. It, you know, it's a recognition. Um, it's a it's a human recognition that we all kind of have to work on. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but this language is. Oh, sorry. I have another thought. I want to say it before I forget. Please. <laughs> working memory not working so well these days. So, the other thought that I had is, um, even for ourselves, not attributing everything to our autism is important too. Um, so I'll give an example, like. I I have an autistic therapist. I'm in therapy. I, I really, as much as you enjoy that, I enjoy it. <laughs> um, but sometimes I'll be saying like, 
oh, I'm really struggling with, you know, this, you know, um, what, whatever the thing is that I'm struggling with. And uh, it's because I'm autistic. Like, that's just because I'm autistic that I'm, you know, she'll be like, don't dismiss your own experiences. It is allowed for that to be hard. Like you are allowed to have that emotional response when you, when you, when you say, just because I'm autistic, you're, you are diminishing your own experience and, and it, it's internalized ableism, right? It's, it's, it's me going like, I don't have a right to feel this way. This is just because of my label. Instead of being like, this is how I feel. This is how I feel. It is, it is hard for me. <laughs> I, I'm not too sure I ever articulate. Like there's certain things I, 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 I mean, I quite often will tell people both at, at work and home, like I'm having an autistic day today. And what I'm, what I'm meaning is that my presentations, my um, ability to communicate socially, my ability to process um, sensory stuff is diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and it's not to, I was going to say it's not to blame the autism, but I kind of am blaming the autism, but, but it's, it's the, these are things about me that I can't change. And I'm just warning you that I'm recognizing I'm struggling with some things mm-hmm. and I'm recognizing these are my autistic presentations rather than, mm-hmm. Um, it's not to negate the feeling and it's yeah. not to negate the experience. Um, I think I sometimes do it to negate it, to be like, ah, uh, yeah, you know, and, and I think it's okay to say I'm struggling and this is why I'm struggling and being autistic means it's hard for me in these situations, whether, whether it's like, you know, well, this would be the ADHD part of me too, like organizing my cupboards, organizing my drawers of doom. I can't do those things. It's so excessively painful and it well, for me i'm always like it shouldn't be painful it shouldn't be hard but it is mm. right it, it, like it shouldn't it's but it's because i'm autistic or it's because i have adhd and yes it's good to have a reason it's good to have an understanding but i need to now like move to the next part which is like accepting that something is hard that my experience of this thing is different from somebody else who might find it easy and that I shouldn't internalize that as shame. I shouldn't internalize that as self-blame. I shouldn't internalize that as I'm in some way less than inferior. But it's like, yeah. Um, you've frozen again. And oh. so, but I kind of want to finish, maybe finish on this. And that this is this is why what we do in this podcast and, and you're my representation in general in public is so super important. That we are sharing honestly when we struggle and we're not struggling we struggle we we share our positive feelings we share our negative feelings and i think we're both pretty good at going it's okay Mm -hmm. you know we're doing pretty well and sometimes it's a struggle and that's okay i'm very good especially at doing that with other people (laughs) you know i'm really good at helping other people accept it um, I, but I, I'm wor- still work on it with myself. Um, though I think I'm, I think I do a, a pretty good job of it overall. Like, um, but yeah, self-compassion is really important and mm-hmm. how we talk about autism to ourselves matters too, as, as is the case with the doctors breaking the stigma. Yeah. Did you want to bring it full circle? Do you have anything you want to say? about How does this link to the architecture? 
article? Well, I think all all we're talking about, we're talking about two things. One, language matters. Language has power. Words matter. Words have power. And and we all need to be careful about how we use language, how we use words, um, because of what how they reflect societal and our own personal experience. I mean, that's a big, fluffy statement. The second thing is we are still being judged with neurotypical from neurotypical norms all the time. And please, world, stop doing that. Please, world, don't just assume if... Kara or Bruce are walking along a beach by themselves that they're sad and lonely. We are probably in a very, very happy space. Yeah. Or, or that we're being rude. If we didn't say hi back, sometimes I don't process that someone said hi to me until they're already down the hall. Like it happens all the time. I'm in my head. <laughs> mm. And so that's it. That's it. That's the two things. It's it's like power <laughs> of language and but also acceptance. Yeah. Acceptance of our differences, acceptance of our presentations, um, and not jumping to conclusions too quickly. Yeah. And if you're going to talk about a label, you got to talk about all of the richness of that label. All, you know, not not keep it, uh, don't, don't keep it as, what am I trying to say? I feel like it's so late here. It's not, it's like 8 p.m., but my brain is tired. You know, it is so much more than the diagnostic criteria. You know? Yes. Yeah. Well, do we have any interesting questions? Let me just think for a moment. Should we do a fun question before we go? Which really means, am I going to surprise you with something interesting? <laughs> okay. Uh, or, I mean, you could surprise me. We could see who comes up with a question first. I'm vastly unprepared as usual. Um, I'm worried about the time because I'd like to talk about time blindness, but that's not going to be time blindness. That's something that... I can do time blindness in like two minutes. Okay. Time blindness. So I'm not entirely sure that the all of these things are time blindness, but I've been really tracking this since I said two episodes ago that I didn't struggle too much with time blindness. I know that I talked about like hyper-focus being difficult for me. Like I can lose track of 14 hours if I hyper-focus. I do hyper-focus a lot. Um, but that generally I'm good at estimating time. I think this is true much of the time. But again, over the last two weeks, I've noticed that it is certainly not true all of the time. Um, and here are some of my like time-related issues. So I experience inertia where if I have an appointment at one o'clock, even though there's things that I could easily do within the time that I have before that, I can't like my body like yeah. freezes and I'm just like anxiously waiting for whatever that appointment is. Um, if I have an appointment where I have to be somewhere, most, not all the time, especially lately, but most of the time I leave way earlier than I need to because I'm afraid yeah. of being late, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Like that's like a coping mechanism. There is definitely a correlation at times where my executive functioning is not functioning the way I would like it to, um, I break things more. I'm like rushing and flustered. I tend to start my routines later and then they take longer and then I am late more frequently. I 
I'm very lucky to have friends like you where I go, I need 15 more minutes before we get started recording the podcast. Um, because I have, you know, at times when I have a lot going on, I do underestimate how long it'll take me to do things. And I won't really start getting ready for that thing until the time. So we said, we're recording at six. I showed up at what, 624? <laughs> you know, so my time skills are not always phenomenal. So when you said you didn't have time blindness, I was a little surprised and not in a critical sense, just that, oh, I kind of guessed you what you, you were. And But what I'm now seeing, what I, what I think is happening is that because you're under work stress, like you're running, you're running a second book. It's, it's a stressful time, but also you don't have your routine. You're not at school. You're not having to do the same things every day. So it's like things are, are weird. Yeah. You are becoming more and more aware of how much cognitive effort it takes to do anything. And yes. that's struggling. And it's just your presentations are showing in a way that is actually quite normal. It's just we, we, we try and mask it all the time. Yep. <laughs> and now it's just <laughs> coming out with abandon. Hmm. And you have in your day-to-day life during school time, you have a whole bunch of mechanisms that are in place that you that you know you work perfectly well. Mm-hmm. And I know you struggle still. You know, you between you and I have talked about this, but like to the external world, you're functioning. Yep. I said functioning, shouldn't say that. You're working, you're working completely fine. And then you get home and you collapse for, for an hour or so to recover. Yes. Great. Cool, cool, cool. You know how to do that. You're in a, a time now where you don't have that structure. And so some things are new and everything becomes, it adds on and adds on and adds on. And you've just got to give yourself, I don't like the word grace for its religious use but you've got to give yourself that trust yeah that is definitely true and and actually when I think about differences when I'm at work I have Sonia who's a wonderful child and youth worker and who is my externalized executive function skills she remembers things that when I tell her to she like she just helps me with everything so I have another person um when I wrote my first book I I mean, it was a solitary endeavor to write my first book, but I lived with someone at the time and now I don't. And so I have more things that I have to keep track of just in general. So all of these things are making demands on my my working memory. And when I wrote my first book, it was right after I'd done my PhD and I was really disciplined. (laughs) And now I have like none of that. I was going to raise that. In fact, I, I just got a, a, a question from a, an observer who said she can't pour from an empty cup. She needs to make sure she fills herself first. Thank <laughs> you, interested Meredith. listener. <laughs> I love that listener. She's absolutely right. That is great advice um, and advice we should, uh, well, we should all take. We should all yes. remember to restore ourselves and... Yeah, be gentle with ourselves, especially at those times when our executive functioning is not functioning, not doing as well as we would like. Well, I think we should probably end there. We've been having some tech issues for those who are watching. I'm seeing technical issues happen again. So Okay. So thank you, Bruce. Thank you, everyone, for sticking with us. And we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye.